It's time for another episode of Healthcare Technology. It's Tech Talk. It's Tech Talk. And it's Friday. Thank you for joining us. My good buddy. TGIF. <laughs> TGIF. My good buddy, Dr. Jay Greenstein. Jay, how are you doing, buddy? What's up, man? I feel like it's been forever since you and I have done this. I mean, it just feels like it's been too long, my friend. You know, sometimes it feels like it's been too long, and sometimes it just seems like it was yesterday. <laughs> Time is a funny thing. Time is a funny thing. <laughs> Jay, we have, I mean, talk about guests. Today, we have an amazing lady uh, yep. with an amazing history in healthcare, in politics, uh, you know, I, I texted you earlier today to say, hey, my appreciation of you and your connections has gone way <laughs> up. I, I did about an hour and a half of research, and normally I have one page, and on her I've got four pages. Katie's a rock star. She is a rock star. So, Katie, welcome to uh, Tech Talk. Uh, we are excited to have you today. Katie Talento is, uh, she, I don't even, sometimes don't even know where to start on this, but Katie is a graduate of the Harvard School of Public Health. She, uh, she has had a, an amazing history in politics. She was an advisor to President Trump in the Trump White House. She is a consultant in all avenues of health care. And we're going to delve into that today a little bit between Jay and I. Jay and I, as everybody knows, we're huge pro-advocates of health care. Uh, we're here just trying to figure out how we can fix health care. And I know that's a huge, passionate uh, subject matter for Katie. So, Katie, welcome to Tech Talk. Thank you so much, Brad and Jay. It's great to see you and to be here with you and your audience. Katie, I, I, I was super excited to read your bio when I first heard about you. You joined Cadre, which is uh, an unnetworking entrepreneur group here in D.C. run by my good friends, uh, Derek and Melanie Coburn. They've done an unbelievable job of curating this community of entrepreneurs and leaders. And um, and your addition was, you know, taking the group, you know, just one more notch higher. So I'm so glad that you're part of Cadre. I read your background and I was like, oh, my God, I've got to talk to this person. I reached out to Melanie. And I was like, hey, Mel, do you want me to do one of those like intro calls? Because, you know, sometimes they'll ask me to do intro calls. And she's like, well, somebody else is doing the call, but, you know, feel free to reach out. So I connected with you on LinkedIn and I was like, hey, can we connect? I really want to learn about your story. So Katie, maybe you can just, I know you've got this amazing background, but in terms of like what you're doing now and the company that you've built and how you're taking really healthcare, insurance, patient advocacy to the next level, maybe share that story with us. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, so um, I started life as an infectious disease epidemiologist, which most people couldn't pronounce until this past <laughs> year. And so, um, so it's kind of cool that epidemiology has made a comeback. But for most of my career, I wasn't doing I was doing health policy and sort of seeing in Washington how healthcare and especially the business of healthcare is so broken and it's hurting patients, but it's also crushing American businesses and sort of feeling the American dream from the middle class. And when I was in government, I would get, you know, very impressive, all the names you would know, giant companies coming to see me to complain about their healthcare problems. 
and you know, I have Walmart in my office, Google in my office, AT&T complaining about how they, they, the troubles they were having managing the carriers that they worked with, the pharmaceutical benefit managers that they worked with. And you know, we were working on price transparency in healthcare and ending secret prices for patients, for employers. And so they would come and tell me their problems in that space. And I was like, man, if these guys can't figure it out and get the price and the costs down for their healthcare, what possible chance does any mid-market employer have in this country? Yeah. And so I, when I got out of government, I started networking more and more with all these people that I'd gotten to know in government. And really kind of to uncover what is the fix here because let me tell you no solutions were coming out of washington at that point and so um and, and i don't know if they still are so you know what i saw was there the one bright spot that sort of drew me and lured me in like a light at the end of the tunnel was there are some i would say a minority like a single digit percent of employers out there who are actually changing it they are they are basically firing their carriers firing their conflicted brokers and they're working with sort of next generation benefits advisors and rebuilding their healthcare from the ground up community-based even for national companies whose who are employers employees are scattered all over the country but they're local they're community-based they're built on direct primary care and they are making it great again. You know, they're really making healthcare great again. And that is what I had been trying to do for four years, what we had made some progress toward, but that's where I wanted to invest my passion and my energy, my time. And that's when I founded All Better Health, which is um, a next generation benefits advisory firm for employers who want to save between 20 and 40% in the first year and have zero to low deductibles for their employees. It's amazing, Katie. I mean, there's a lot there, but when you and I had a, a conversation a few weeks ago, we talked about the corruption, right? And this is a no filter podcast. Like it is what it is. We're just going to say it how it is. And just the corruption in healthcare, pharmacy benefit managers, people, they, they've got their hands in each other's pockets and it's the middleman literally stealing money from the system, from consumers, patients, providers. You also mentioned um, the conflicted, you know, uh, the brokers that are conflicted. Can you give some detail around that, Katie? Because the audience needs to hear what you know. Sure. So, you know, what we call the healthcare swamp is filled with all the various players in the healthcare industry, all the middlemen, all the initial suppliers, the end users, the entire healthcare swamp. We're talking about hospitals, pharmaceutical benefit managers, which are middlemen between manufacturers of drugs and insurers and patients and um, the carriers, the insurance carriers, the brokers, who have I left out, pharma itself. So these guys, you know, this industry, in most industries, in order to do well, you have to actually solve a customer's problem <laughs> and you have to do it at an affordable price. <laughs> so in, in healthcare, the, the only way people are doing well is if they keep people sick and they charge outrageous, unaffordable prices. And yep. so every single entity in the swamp is doing this. So let's start with um, hospitals. Okay. Hospitals are, you know, they are charging these outrageous list prices so that they can enter into secret contracts with insurance carriers that, you know, the payers of healthcare don't get to see, even though they're apparently bound by these contracts. Um, and, and they're saying, hey, we're going to, here's my giant ridiculous list price 
But for you, Blue Cross, or for you, Aetna, I'm going to cut, I'm going to give you 50% off those billed charges. And then the broker who works for Aetna or Blue Cross, even though they market themselves as a buyer's agent, like you, the employer, or you, the patient, the broker goes to the, to the buyer of healthcare and says, hey, you know, you were going to have a 20% rate increase this year. That's what Blue Cross wanted to do, to do for you. But because of me, now you're going to have just an 8% rate increase. You're welcome. And right. so all the, and all the hospitals have to do every year is just keep raising the list price. And then they can offer bigger and bigger, bigger discounts off of that crazy list price. And somehow that's considered a quality product. I don't, I don't understand it. But that's just hospitals and carriers. They have these secret pricing contracts. You, the payer, aren't allowed to see those prices in advance. Now, that is starting to change. And the scary thing is some of the brokers are making more money than the providers, the, the doctors. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the one thing Jay and I sort of fight and look at all the time because we built a very cool analytical system to, to see that on an ongoing daily kind of basis. And it is scary of how bloated and broken that it is. And I love your passion. I can just, people can't see this, but in, in watching the, the Zoom meeting here that we've got going on, you can just see the passion coming out of you when you talk about it. And I love that. She's got fire coming out of her she mouth. She does. She's, like she's our kind of a lady, you know. I mean, with Jay and she I, is. Jay and I fight these battles, and we get in these passionate discussions about how to change this, because the system really should be a very, very simple system. It's a commodity. It's a service. And it's just, it's so broken and so bloated because of all this in-between stuff and, and how to, I mean, Jay and I could sit here and in, in an hour tell you how to fix it, but that doesn't no, I don't seem know about to that. Well, Maybe an hour and a half. Maybe I don't an know. hour and a half, but <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't fit into the political scheme and some of those aspects of it. And we have a general contractor or whoever we're buying the house from and they're building, when you're building it really care about the middlemen. I mean, I'm sure that there are middlemen in the supply chain for every industry, but we don't care. Why? Because we can afford the price, right? So ultimately, someone is accountable for that price. That means that the middlemen actually have to produce value in the supply chain. There's nothing wrong with a middleman that produces value, right? So when we first get into the insurance business here in America, the idea was, hey, they're going to get us volume discounts. That's why everyone thinks insurance is so great, because we're going to get volume discounts on our health care. It's going to be amazing. But when those discounts are really just based on high in the sky, crazy sticker prices, and you know, you're not actually making a contract with a buyer that's based on an actual price they know in advance, and you're competing against your competitors on the basis of that price, the way a construction general contractor would be, you know, then they can just have all these middlemen that take value out of the system. They're taking value from the end purchaser rather than giving value. Yeah, I wanted I wanted to ask you about pharmacy benefit managers, because, again, this is like this. This gets to me like like. I'm not going to say like nothing else, but it really does get to me because it seems like it's kickback city. And I just want you, if you wouldn't mind, you know, for our providers out there that don't really understand the mechanics of what pharmacy benefit managers actually do. Can you just share, share just some knowledge there? Yes. So again, this is a middleman that sort of kind of makes sense at the beginning when you have a blue cross or an Aetna 
and maybe they don't have all the time or the energy, the resources to go and negotiate every single drug for every single plan or purchaser from pharmaceutical industry. And maybe they could pull all the members from all their insured plans and get better discounts, volume discounts from pharma, right? So what these companies started off as is, okay, we're gonna take all your members, we're gonna negotiate with pharma on the basis of that volume. We'll get you better deals on drugs that way. It's reasonable, that makes sense. Well, it has so far been removed from that particular business model, which may have worked at some point. Now, you know, there's, there's a little law that we call the anti-kickback law. And you're not allowed to actually pay kickbacks in healthcare. And so, however, the PBM industry, the pharmaceutical benefit manager industry, years ago, got themselves exempted from this kickback law. Oh, Why? Of course. I know, it's shocking. Why? Because what they want, what they do is, okay, they help design the formulary, the drug formulary for everyone's insurance plan. So, you know, your insurance plan has a bottom tier formulary, the best tier, which has, you know, very little copay and very low co-insurance and, you know, the cheapest formulary tier for you versus the highest formulary tier. Everybody thinks that that formulary is designed on the basis of financial and clinical value, right? You think that, hey, if a drug is cheap to me on my plan, it must be because it's, it really works well and it's really cheap for, for everyone to purchase. So that's why my insurance plan and my employer are trying to steer me to that drug, right? So formularies should be based on financial and clinical value. Well, no, that is completely wrong. They are entirely based on pay-to-play scheme. So what um, the best way I have to describe it is the way that the former Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, he used to talk to the president about this all the time, which is why the president started working on rebate reform. So pharmaceutical, uh, Alex Azar was a pharmaceutical executive. He used to run the U.S. division of Eli Lilly. And wow. he, he told the president, he said, okay, we had the new like mousetrap when it came to insulin and we wanted to bring this product onto the market at an affordable price. I actually wanted to make it more affordable than our competitors and make it accessible. And so we, I wanted a launch price that was reasonable or at least more reasonable than the others. So he goes to the PBMs and he says, Hey, you know, I want to get this drug onto the formularies that you work with. And so remember the PBMs ultimate customer, is the carrier. Their customer is not you, the employer or the patient. Their customer is the carrier, okay? So the carrier designs the formulary and sells it to the employer, employer. but the PBM says to the pharmaceutical manufacturer, oh, nice drug you got there. Be ashamed if you couldn't get it on anyone's formulary. Oh you my know, God. You might, you might need to pay me a kickback in order to get it on the formulary. Cause if you don't, I'm either going to keep it off the formulary altogether, or I'm going to put it on the highest tier so that it's really expensive for enrollees to use. And so you have to pay the biggest kickback. Now we have sanitized this by calling these things rebates. Okay. But they're not rebates, they're kickbacks. And so now your formulary on your big carrier plan is entirely designed around who pays the biggest kickback. And usually it's the brand drugs that pay, because they can afford to, pay the biggest kickbacks. So we put brand drugs onto the cheapest tier of a formulary, which means enrollees are going and getting that drug because it's cheaper for them to use. The employer has to pay the entire cost of that drug apart from the enrollees cost sharing. So if you put that drug on the cheapest formulary tier, the member, the patient, is going to pay a little tiny amount, 
but the employer is going to pay the rest. So if you're putting brand drugs that have competitors or have generic competitors that are much, much, much cheaper by orders of magnitude, you're putting the brand drug on the cheapest tier for the patient, they're going to go get that drug, but the employers are now eating the cost of the rest of it. And you remember, we thought these formularies were based on clinical and financial value. No, they're entirely designed around who pays the biggest rebates. This is why President Trump had a really important policy to eliminate this, eliminate these so-called rebates or pass them on straight to the patients or the employers. Man, I'll tell you what, this whole fucking thing disgusts me. I am like, so, I'm like disgusted by this, but it's oh, great. Trump totally killed that policy. Totally. They totally yeah. killed it. I'll tell you, it's great to have someone like you on this podcast that really understands the inner workings of how all these pieces fit together. So I'm so happy that you're here today. And I love having other warriors on this podcast. It's just so cool. Amen. So Brad, I, I know I know we got to do a break and then we'll come back and we'll chat. I more can't wait to come back. I've got some questions that are just steaming from what she said. So we'll, <laughs> we'll be back in just a minute. A, a little 70s music today. Oh, cool. This episode is sponsored by Infinity. In the modern age of electronic data interchange, Infinity is committed to helping clinicians get paid fast so that they can spend less time tracking claims and more times with their patients. As a pro advocate for the healthcare industry, we create tools that make sense for electronic claims processing and business analytics. You couple that with superior support team we strive to ensure your business is performing at its best. Infinity, committed to the future of claim processing. Today's show is sponsored by Kaizenovate. What does your custom dream app look like? Elevate your practice with Kaizenovate. www.kaizo-health.com Come on! And the data doc of talk is Tech Talk. Well, welcome back to Tech Talk. Katie Talento uh, is with us today. We're talking about all kinds of effects of healthcare, what's happened to healthcare, uh, and the passion that she has for that. This is, as you know, one of Jay and I's big passions about that. And, and Katie, I, I just loved the last segment of what we were talking about and, and how it affects. But in, in the break, we were talking a little bit about how providers, and that's one of the sides Jay and I focus on a lot, is how the providers over the last decade or so have gone into sort of survival mode. And here they're out fighting these huge battles for a buck and a half more reimbursement uh, while these brokers and these middle people are just beating it up with revenue. Uh, it, obviously, capitalism may be dead in healthcare. What Do you have some comments in that aspect? How do we get back to this non-bloated to where it's really the patient, the consumer, and the necessary middle in there, and, and then really the provider. How do we get back to that point? Yeah, well, Brad, I mean, that is a $64 million question. Yeah, I think that you know one of the things that we talk about a lot is when you have suicide rates among doctors that are just phenomenal, and, and, and you're seeing 
the level of burnout, the level of um, depression. And, you know, we have all these hospital initiatives to try to solve the suicide problem or the burnout problem on healthcare providers. This isn't burn. Burnout makes it sound like, gosh, I'm just tired of working so hard, you know, gee. But really what's going on is a phenomenon that we first noticed and identified after the Vietnam War. And you had soldiers coming back from the war. They had participated in things that were traumatic to them to have participated in. And we had a word for it. It was called moral injury. And I'm not the one that came up with this term in the healthcare context, but it's something that I think perfectly captures what's going on when good people come into a bad system. No little children grow up wanting to be like disgusting middlemen who suck value and hurt patients, right? That's not that's not what anybody goes into healthcare for, whether they're doctors or whether they're hospital executives or insurance executives. Um, but but we're all part of a really bad system, and it has an effect on us. So I think it's really important to try to find ways where we realign incentives. Because what's going on, the reason why, you know, all the, what you were talking about, Jay, where we're, we're lobbying for, you know, our reimbursement rates against this other, you know, entity. Because I always had, in the White House, especially, and always on Capitol Hill, we would have the groups come, the, the PBMs would blame the carriers. and and the pharma guys and the pharma guys would blame the PBMs and the carriers would blame the insurers and you know it, everyone blamed each other the pharmacies were all going out of business because of everyone persecuting them so you know we had different types of providers we'd have the chiros who blame the PTs and the PTs who blame the doctors and you know everybody you guys are familiar with this but it, it was like this zero-sum game everyone's angling their own reimbursement for their own people again like I said earlier in this industry, everyone does better when the patients are sicker and prices are higher. So how do we break that like toxic cycle? And that's sort of what we do at All Better. There are other uh, colleagues I have doing this in other companies as well, but it's still, it's just a very burgeoning embryonic movement. But essentially what we do is we fire the carrier or we, or we unbundle the components of a carrier plan. So a carrier plan is made up of a number of components, different business units within that carrier or external companies that have preferred partnerships and kickback relationships with the carrier. There's the network access, right? Which is really just a series of contracts with providers that give you access to discounts. There's the claims processing aspect where you know somebody has to write the checks to the hospital or the doctor. There's the, um, the pharmaceutical benefit management, right? That, that we already talked about. There's the wellness programs, which are universally a joke. There's the um, care coordination programs, which basically are just utilization management, trying to you know ration care so that we don't have to pay for as much. And so th they, these are the, the components. What we do at All Better and what really innovative, interesting employers are starting to do because they're desperate and they have to do something is we say, okay, what if we took all those components, which are basically answering just to shareholders, each other's shareholders, they're in secret contracts with each other and the employers on the bottom bearing the financial weight of all of it. What we do is we say, we're gonna put the employer at the center. We're going to unbundle each of those components and compete with independent vendors to provide for those services we as the advisor are going to coordinate quarterback all those components make sure they're working seamlessly for the patient and they're contracted each of them is contracted not with each other but with the employer well what does the employer want what is the employer going to pay for 
I'll tell you what, they're going to pay for healthier employees at a lower cost. So when every single one of those components and those vendors is getting paid based on delivering healthy employees at a lower cost, well, all of a sudden those incentives are now driving what they do. So let me give you an example. Primary care. <laughs> Primary care is completely broken in America today. Today we have a fee-for-service treadmill that these docs are on. You know, they only get paid by the visit, right? So the way they maximize revenue is to try to have as many visits in a day as possible, which means you have to take half a day off work if you're if you need your primary care doc. You have to take half a day off work. You have to go in. Maybe you get an appointment today. Maybe you get an appointment in six weeks. You don't know. You go in when you have your appointment. You have to go up to some like bulletproof glass. Tell your story in front of the waiting room to whatever, you know, gatekeeper, surly gatekeeper is there at the beginning. Fill out a bunch of redundant paperwork that you already filled out online because they sent you an email telling you to fill it out before you get there. You have to fill it out again. You have to show your ID card that you show every time you're there and that hasn't changed. And then you have to get, you get called back and then you have to tell your story again to some tech. And then you get to tell your story again to a nurse. And then finally, you get the six minutes or seven minutes with the with the physician. Well, he he actually had six minutes with you, so he can't take a risk that he's diagnosing you wrong. So what is he going to do? He's going to send you out to high cost diagnostics, yep. labs, specialists, imaging, yep. ten different places. You have now have ten more appointments you have to make. And I, I can't take the risk that I'm diagnosing you wrong. I don't have time to figure out what your issue is. I don't have time to manage your chronic disease. So I only I have to get to the next guy for the next six minutes. So then you get your referrals. You go, and by the way, he's referring you to, you know, if he's owned by a hospital, which many of them are now, he's referring you to hospital-based services that are three times the cost. So he's, he's sending you to the lab that's owned by the hospital and the imaging center that's owned by the hospital and the orthopedist practice that's owned by the hospital. So you're doing all that. You But, but when that, by the time you leave, you're like, man, I don't have time for all that. I'm just going to live with the pain or I don't have time for all that. So, you know, I'll deal with this next year. I'll deal with my like glucose problem next year. So what we're finally seeing is, you know, how do you realign the incentives? That guy only gets paid when you're sick and you need to see him, right? I'm not going to him, I'm going through that agony if I'm not really sick, right? So he only gets a bunch of people in order to do well in his practice. Well, that's not employers want to bunch of sick people. What if we started paying doctors for keeping my people healthy? Now, if that doctor were paid a certain amount every month to keep people healthy, and maybe he wasn't paid by the visit. Maybe he was just paid that flat fee every month. Well, all of a sudden, now that doctor is free to text with me or email with me or do a Zoom with me, maybe three times a month. Or, you know, now he can spend an hour with a really difficult and challenging patient so that he can manage their care. He doesn't have to refer them out. Or he can send me like, okay, I see what insurance you have. I'm going to find a lower cost lab or imaging center to send you to because I don't have time to treat you like a human being and to think thoughts about your healthcare condition. And this is why we have primary care physicians committing suicide. It's completely outrageous. They don't know what a primary care to turn into this. They have that like Norman Rockwell picture in their mind. They wanted a relationship with patients. They wanted to manage their care. They wanted to be like family with those patients. These are good men and women. 
But we've turned them into cogs in a capitalist machine, worry about how to maximize revenue. It's disgusting. And what we're doing is we are changing that dialogue completely. And we're figuring out, okay, I want it, I want my patients to stay healthy. I'm going to pay you a bonus at the end of the year based on how many ER visits you've reduced, how many um, urgent care visits you've reduced, how many readmissions to hospitals you've reduced. So now my doctor's incentive is to keep me healthy and to check in on me after my hospitalization, to check in on me, to make sure, to get, to make himself available to me so I don't end up in the ER, available to me overnight so that he can actually talk to me and look at my like sprained finger or whatever, right? So that I don't end up in that $4,000 ER. Yeah, I mean that is value-based healthcare, right? And Absolutely. and there are, there's some dirty little secrets that are that are probably not known to a lot of people, but you know the entire um, um, supply chain of a of a patient going to a primary care physician and then going through those hospital system providers, imaging, drugs, injections, specialist. The insurance companies don't care and they don't care because all they're going to do is raise the prices the following year in order to keep their margins exactly the same, if not better. And that's the dirty little secret. And that's why the cost of healthcare just keeps going up. So the fact that there are people like you out there, Katie, that are disrupting the system, that are literally breaking down the components and finding ways to really create value exponentially, I think is critically important for the patients for the providers and quite frankly, for our country. So I, I, I love it. You, and we've removed the patient from some of that aspect too, so that the middleman and the, can control and the patients are lost in this, in this component of it. They have so little, uh, so little you, say in their care. Let me give you a story. Let me give you a story about primary care. So um, there's a patient named Becky and she, um, mom of two, 39 years old. She, um, she starts having, you know, weird symptoms, all kinds of symptoms, back pain, GI issues, um, weird fevers, like that, right? She goes to a different specialist for each thing, right? She doesn't really have primary care. And even if she did, again, it's like six minutes, you got to know what you need before you go in, right? So, you know, she's, she's going to, to the GI guy for a GI symptom. She's going to an orthopedist for the back pain. She's going to some um, rheumatologist for this like weird chronic fever, whatever. They all sort of give her a non-answer or a wrong answer. And this goes on and on and on. Finally, it turns out that, you know, what she actually has is colorectal cancer. And if she had textbook presentation of colorectal cancer, if you put all the symptoms together, but there was no primary care provider putting all those symptoms together, coordinating her care. She is dead within a year of that diagnosis because by the time she gets the right diagnosis, it's way too late. Becky was my sister. She was my best friend. And, you know, she was 39 when she died with two small boys. And mm -hmm. she is the reason why, you know, she, well, I mean, I was involved in this before this happened to Becky, but even like me being a, you know, I was, I was the White House health staffer and I could not get her to have good care at a hospital. I could not get coordinated care at a hospital. I could not prevent medical errors and complications from happening that should not have happened. And what chance does anyone have when, when you're, you're, you're just surrounded by dysfunction everywhere you go? Let me tell you another story. There's a woman named Wanda Brooks. And Wanda, um, she's a grandmother. And in her 50s, 
she worked multiple shifts every day at a nursing home and you know making very low low income but middle middle income and she was really really kind of tired dehydrated didn't get enough sleep and her workplace wouldn't let her finish her shift until she went to an emergency room she didn't want to go she begged not to go so she knew she just needed a snack and a nap and whatever right but they made her go so she gets gouged for eight thousand dollars she gets an mri of the brain for lightheadedness okay and and dehydration and she gets eight thousand dollar bill she can't afford to pay it so then her hospital takes her to court sues her and garnishes her wages oh my and god i spent, a, I spent it's, it's unbelievable <laughs> and this is going on i spent i spent a morning in a courthouse in fredericksburg fredericksburg virginia with a team research team from johns hopkins because that this is where i met wanda this team they were there every Friday because that every Friday of every month, this hospital owned the docket where they sued all their patients. And these people were insured. They had jobs. They just couldn't afford $8,000 bills from for care they didn't need and didn't want. And so, you know, they come in, they don't understand the billing bureaucracy. They get an explanation of benefits in the in the mail. It says don't It's like Chinese. Anything. It's like reading Chinese. Right. They don't know. They're not like you and me, and they know that they can call up a hospital and negotiate. Most people don't know that. And even if it's wrong, they have to know that. It's crazy. So they don't know what's going on half the time. They didn't even know they were in debt until they got sued. So they come in here, they don't know how to ma- navigate this system, and they just get their wages garnished because because why? Because this hospital wants it. And the average bill that these people are being sued for is less than $3,000. It's like $2,000, the average bill. But most Americans have less than that in their savings. So we're putting out all these high deductible plans on these em- in, in these employer-sponsored plans. Everyone, all these employers, they want to say, oh, I want to be really generous. I want to put you know money into people's HSAs. So I'm going to have a high deductible plan. Well, if you want to be really generous, why don't you have a more deductible plan? Well, through this like weird banking platform that they don't even understand it has to do with taxes so you have these people with these high deductible plans but they don't have the cash so now they there was the same john Hopkins team did a uh, study of hospitals over 100 hospitals in the state of virginia where i live 40 percent of them sued patients and those who were most likely to sue the patients were nonprofit hospitals they were 12 times more likely to sue patients, nonprofit, wow. tax exempt, charity hospitals. Wow. And Wanda, Wanda made a huge difference, a huge impact on me. We brought her to the, we invited her to the State of the Union address because we wanted the president to tell her story as he introduced Price Transparency Initiative. But of course, you know, we had to uninvite her because other priorities cut out her, her section of the speech. And so I like to tell her story whenever I can because she didn't get that day in the sun. And that is why I started All Better, is Wanda and all the workers like her. That That's a great story. Isn't it one, about every one in five are in some type of medical collection, Katie? That's right. One in five Americans have, have been in medical collections, and half of all collections are medical collections. That's wow. right. And you were talking about care coordination. I have a new tool that's coming out, a new software platform. And the reason we developed this is there is so much lack of care coordination. And most of the medical technology that's looking at value-based care 
is centered around the provider, which is wrong in my opinion. So we centered it around the patient and every provider, every lab, every um, medicine that is taken all centers around the single patient. And it instantly disclosed the lack of care coordination, the bloated kind of lab and tests that went on. I'd love to share that with you sometimes. The wrong that decision are, making that's that's taking place every step of the way, especially for these chronic care conditions. Like you can yeah. see it, like you literally can see it in front of you. Yeah, it's just amazing how it graphically lays out. We've mobilized it. We plan to, you know, it's mainly a primary care physician tool when we originally started it because they, they're good guys. They just, the patients don't understand what's going on. Sometimes we found that they were going to the same type of specialist and the patient just didn't understand that. There was no coordination between the providers. And so they got double billed, sometimes triple billed. And the most important thing that you pointed out, we had many instances under Medicare where the patient lost their life because of this lack of care coordination. Uh, because they were they were being subject to surgeries and transplants and hip replacements and things that are so assembly line medicine that in some cases, in one case I can think of very clearly, sepsis came into play and this patient lost their life. They were 87 years old, shouldn't have ever had a hip replacement to start out with. Ridiculous. But just lack of care coordination. And greed, and greed. And greed. We're going to take another quick break here. I want to come back and I want to talk just a little bit and get your opinion on where we're standing today, where we're sort of on the cliff of a government single-based health care. I would love to hear your opinion on that, if you don't mind. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tech Talk. You are listening to Tech Talk Healthcare. Today's guest is Katie Talento. She was a leading healthcare advisor on the Domestic Policy Council for past President Donald Trump. She is an epidemiologist and a veteran health policy advisor. Tech Talk is heard on Anchor FM and many other internet radio stations around the globe. Thank you for joining us. This episode is sponsored by Infinity. In the modern age of electronic data interchange, Infinity is committed to helping clinicians get paid fast so that they can spend less time tracking claims and more times with their patients. As a pro advocate for the healthcare industry, we create tools that make sense for electronic claims processing and business analytics. You couple that with superior support team, we strive to ensure your business is performing at its best. Infinity, committed to the future of claim processing. Come on! And the data doc of talk is Tech Talk. It's Brad. Tech Talk. We're back. As you can tell, Spinning we're... Spinning the vinyl, man. Spinning the vinyl over here. You know, I sat here last night and I uh, I had a 70s moment. You know, I went back uh, <laughs> I went back into my uh, childhood and, uh, God, there was some amazing music, wasn't there? Damn right. Love the 70s. <laughs> we're talking with Katie Talento, uh, just an amazing lady that's one of the strongest advocates I have heard in some of the same visions that Jay and I have and some of the same messages we've been trying to get out all these years, Jay. So it's very exciting to listen to. Before we yep. took a break, I wanted to, I said I wanted to ask you a little bit. I, I really believe we're at a point here politically 
this thing could tumble down the hill really bad. Uh, or maybe there's some aspects of it I haven't thought about uh, that are positive for it. But in, I am in full agreement. we need to tear this thing down completely and rebuild it. But how do we do that? And in regards to that, what, what are your opinions and thoughts on government-controlled health care? Does it make it better? Does it make it worse? Single-payer kind of methodologies. Yeah, I think that, you know, one thing that I've discovered over the years is, you know, one side on the political aisle has been trying to expand government influence in healthcare, <clears throat> and they're not able to, to, you know, well, let me, let me, let me back up. <laughs> Employer sponsored healthcare is not going away. It's, right. it's just not going away. And that's because the politics of healthcare is fear-based. So, you know, everyone's terrified of losing what they have, even if what they have is complete trash. But they think it's not trash because it's got some awesome Blue Cross logo or some logo on their ID card. So they think it's great. It's a security blanket. And, you know, it's understandable, right? It used to be that all the fights that we had in Washington were about coverage, right? You know, because coverage was the path to affordability. So we would fight about you know, how many people get coverage, who pays for it, what coverage has to cover. Um, those were all the fights all through the ACA days and, you know, up till now. But now, you know, and the ACA did expand coverage for you know, maybe, well, it's debatable, but maybe 20 million people, 30 million people expanded coverage for them. Some people lost coverage too, but um, I think probably more people gained coverage. But the <laughs> more people are covered today in America than ever before but fewer people can afford their care than ever before. So mm. we're now realizing that insurance is not the same thing as affordability. And that was not true when we were all growing up. I mean, I got out of college, I had a hundred dollar premium on my like first Blue Cross plan when I was 22 or whatever. And you know, that's just not where things are. And you look at the ACA exchanges and your average premium for a family of four is over $20,000. It's, it's got a really, really high $10,000 deductible. This is not affordability. And so I do think that when you try to, and this is why we haven't had like full on single payer yet. When you try to say, hey, I'm gonna burn it all down. The, the, the plan that you are terrified of losing, I'm gonna take it away from you and burn it all down. The plan that your employer is, is offering you I'm going to burn it all down. I'm going to make it great over here. Don't you worry your pretty head about it. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> well, people, people don't believe that. And that is why they won't vote for that. It scares them. So um, there's a reason why the candidates that go full on for that lose primaries. And so I think that the 160 or 70 millions or so Americans that get their healthcare coverage through their employer, that's here to stay. I'm not really worried about, them. but when it comes to what we, what we call single pairing, like people on my side of the aisle, I come out of the Republican side of the aisle, people on my side of the aisle always say, well, government and healthcare is bad. Government, this, government. okay. Well, government is already in healthcare. <laughs> government pays for half of all healthcare in this country. And they certainly pay for all the healthcare or most of the healthcare for the people who are consuming the most of it, which is seniors. So I think it's a little bit, you know, pointless for us to kind of rage against the government machine. But instead, I think we have to start like 
aiming towards the bright spots. How can we make the, the bright spots brighter? How can we spread and evangelize and spread the gospel of, of do employers? Because employers are where change is happening because they're the only ones who really can change. Medicare can't change. It's not really changing. It's very slow. Um, so employers are driving that more and more. And for too long, they took their cues from what Medicare is doing. Now we want Medicare to start taking their cues from what employers are doing. Yeah, that's a great point. That's awesome. That um, a, we talked, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead, Brad. No, that, that, that's a great point. You, you know, as a, a business owner with professional level employees, it is very expected. You have to have that Cadillac kind of program to attract the talent to do it. And it just every year now, last year it didn't go up unbelievable, but every year it's this huge piece of, of, uh, that I, it makes me have to go on and raise my fees and my services. And it's just getting out of control. And, uh, you know, I get scared a little bit when we talk about letting the government, you're right about the, the amount that they control and input with, uh, with the older age and the resources that are there, but yet I'm a little concerned about the, the control that they have and the limit that they might, uh, limit on those services. And then do we change technology in America and not make it because there's not the incentive to, to have the best healthcare system in America? Uh, you know, there's just a I mean, lot I of components that, of that. I think the the biggest firewall against a full-on single-payer takeover is making private health care appealing, right? right? Right now, like we've discussed, everyone's suffering. You're insured on your employer's plan, and you're still dying of colorectal cancer for crappy care management, right? Right. So... As long as healthcare is so miserable to endure, the system is like going to the DMV and everyone hates it and they can't <laughs> afford it and it's bankrupting everyone. As long as that's happening, there's going to be a massive voting block for single payer because, you know, people just want out from this agony in their lives. Yeah, it's a very good point. And the flip side of that coin is they don't know the pain that exists on the single payer side either. I mean, I, whether it's my colleagues in different countries, you know, other other professional friends of mine that live in Britain or Canada. Well, Canada, I don't know, it's not really I know they've got a lot of private insurance, but but in Europe, like there it's not it's not the panacea, it's not the be all end all. And I know here in the States, at least in the chiropractic universe, Medicare is a nightmare. I mean, it's a nightmare and they can't manage a like a very simple and in, and by the way, in a clinically inappropriate benefit, they don't even follow the clinical practice guidelines that exist in science. And so for me, it's it's a really scary thought because the government has not demonstrated they can do a a good job. I think that there are some things that the government can try to do. And you you talk to people from these other countries that have these socialized systems and they love their system. So it really challenges like our Republican orthodoxy sometimes. And when I when I drill down on it, like what is it that you love? Because I know you have these wait times. I know that you have this rationing. What is it that you love? What it is, is it's primary care. The one thing that these countries are doing right, and not all of them, but the ones that have a successful system that their voters aren't trying to shut down, it's because of primary care. They have a relationship with primary care and their primary care is working as intended. So, you know, now when you get to a specialist, if you really need a specialist, you're in trouble in those systems. You really are. But 
We've got to rebuild primary care. You know, yeah. I had a I had an experience younger in a younger part of my life where I was at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester with a life threatening issue, and and one I stayed at this Ronald McDonald kind of house that was sponsored by our church, and it was amazing of the ten or twelve patients that were there, eight or nine of them were from other countries that just couldn't get that specialty service uh, in their country. A lot of Canadians, Brits. And so that's the piece that I don't think the outside world sees. And I think you're right. It's really good when it's primary care or the pharmacy, you know, when it's almost free or is free. But whenever something, some crisis happens in your life, it's probably not going to be a very good system. I, I was in Sweden speaking for a, a business chamber of commerce, and they showed me around because of the healthcare, some of their facilities, they have beautiful facilities. They don't have doctors to staff them. Uh, hmm. It costs a lot to live there. And most of the Swedes then use the emergency room as their primary care physician. So it doesn't work really well uh, in those kind of scenarios. So I still believe America has the best healthcare system in the world. Uh, the technology that comes out in, in our system is amazing to me. Uh, I'm still alive because of that. But I don't want that to change, and I, I'm afraid if the government gets involved in that, it's going to change to where the innovation is not there anymore, and, and we have to fit within that mold. And that's the piece I don't like about it. Uh, I've got another government question. Jay, do you have anything else you want to ask? I've got one more question. You go, and then I'll, 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 I'll do the last question because I definitely have um, one more. Sure. Because you're an infectious disease epidemiologist, uh, I couldn't, I'd be missed if I didn't ask you about COVID and your thoughts about yeah. COVID. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a conservative kind of guy, and I believe that we've had some amazing decisions made in the last presidency. Do, do, do you believe that he really took for hard, Trump did? He cared about Americans and their health and what was happening in this crisis. Can you tell me from your perspective as an epidemiologist and being in that uh, presidency, that administration, Give me the lowdown on what really happened with COVID. Okay, well, I thank God I left the White House right before COVID. I left before COVID hit. Um, and so I, I wasn't there to watch the president and how he engaged on that issue. Um, I talked to a lot of people who were, um, and they told me, well, you know, when I give him advice, he takes it. Yeah. When I give him recommendations and I tell him what the science is, he says, go, go ahead, go do what you're recommending. Um, my experience with the president is that for a, for a Manhattan billionaire, he has a remarkable finger on the pulse of regular everyday Americans. And I don't know if it's aspirational because regular everyday Americans like you and me and everyone else, like we all want to be a, man, a billionaire. We, that's what's so great about America is we can see ourselves in Donald Trump. That's what we dream of being in some ways, not every way, but in some ways. And I don't know if that's what it was. I don't know if he, he grew up on his father's construction sites and he just, you know, he interacted with a lot of working people, union bosses, and um, I don't know what it is, but he had a way of caring about the forgotten men and women and really honing right in on issues that would speak to their hearts. Um, and he really, really cared about that. And he could see, okay, you know, it wasn't just that he hates China, right? It's because he saw what was happening to the Rust Belt, right? right. It wasn't just that, you know, he, 
he understood the economics of the pricing failure in healthcare. No, it's because he saw how people were being gouged and bankrupted by these secret prices. So he just had an instinct. It was purely instinct. He had just an instinct. And, um, and I found that it was very genuine. He was very thoughtful and caring. And he always listened and he always found the person in the room. You know, there's always more than one person in the room with the president of the United States. He would find the person in the room who hadn't talked and he would say, well, what do you think? And it wouldn't matter who it was. It could be, you know, the secretary, it could be the most junior staffer there. And he'd say, well, what do you think? And he would really listen. So, um, you know, I think he's, I think he's an amazing guy. I think he's, uh, we're not done hearing from him. (laughs) So um, despite the big tech efforts. So So I'll I'll tell you, go ahead, Brad. On the infectious diseases for COVID, with your education and things, has it gone well? Has it gone bad? Uh, could we, should we have expected more from the government in those aspects or healthcare in itself? Uh, I, to me, it was just an overwhelming thing. It just the thought process of the coordination of things just blows my mind of what had to have gone on behind the scenes. Yeah, so I think the, the way to think about it is this. You know, a lot of people would criticize the president for, you know, not listening to the scientists or the public health experts. Well, you know, I'm a public health advisor, right? So if you ask me, okay, how do we shut down an infectious disease? I can tell you. I can tell you exactly how to shut down infectious disease. And there will be no more deaths from this disease. We will stop it in its track. Of course, we're going to have to collapse the economy because we're going to lock everybody in their house. So, yeah, listen to me, listen to the public health experts, listen to the scientists, but we pay these elected officials. I'm not elected, nobody elected me. We pay these elected officials to listen to all the experts in various aspects of the common good and to weigh the trade-offs between them. So when you've got a giant problem like COVID, you don't just listen to the scientific experts, though of course you must, but you also have to listen to the teachers and the parents and the um, economic expert, the trade experts, the transportation, like you have to listen to everyone. And, and we, this, this disease, this pandemic created impossible choices for our elected officials, impossible trade-offs that they, now listen, they're, they're the ones that wanted the job and, <laughs> and they have to They got it. And so I have zero sympathy for any of them, but, um, but I will say that we have, we asked them to weigh these trade-offs and some of them made wrong decisions. Sometimes they made right decisions. All of them made both right and wrong decisions at different times. Every single politician I can think of did that. And so I would say that our system, you know, I, I used to, for some reason, I became like the darling of British radio during the COVID epidemic. And I was doing all these British radio interviews and the BBC or whoever would ask me, why is it that you have these oh, states, you know, that are doing all these wrong things like Texas or whatever. They just hated the fact that we didn't have the central government, the command and control. And I'd be like, well, you know, the thing about America is that we don't take orders from Washington not very well. So we have to... <laughs> We, have we don't to, take orders from the to, king or the queen. <laughs> exactly. So we had to, we had this beautiful opportunity to have truly this laboratory, literally a laboratory Experiment. of yep. 50 yeah. states 
you know, where we could compare interventions without having to run a clinical trial where we randomize right. everybody to certain interventions. So I do think that, you know, you're going to see a massive disparity of different approaches, and we will have many, many, many lessons to learn for decades to come that scientists can examine. But I don't hold any one uh, politician, you know, fully at blame for, for everything that's happened. They had impossible choices. I think many of them did the best they could. Many of them completely sucked and did not do the best they could. Many of them exploited it for political purposes and to exert the kinds of control that, that regular democracy never used to give them. So um, I, I think that's a problem. But I do think that, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't, there aren't specific things that I would say, oh, Donald Trump should have done this differently, or even that Joe Biden should be doing something differently. Right. You know, right. really, this is local and state issue for the most part. Yeah. I got to tell you, I love your perspective on the laboratory experiment. I think you're you're so right. We actually, long term, it's probably a huge advantage for us that we had different states, different jurisdictions, taking different approaches that we can learn from rather than just one approach. So I think that's really awesome perspective. Okay, I have, I have a, a, one other statement and then two questions for you. My other statement is that I'm not a Donald Trump fan. Um, I'm a registered Republican, but I'm not a Donald Trump fan. However, I think what I, my personality is not to be binary. Like I'm a Libra, so I can see a lot of different sides. So I really appreciate your, your, your insider perspective of the things that he did well, because I thought he did some things well also, I just couldn't vote for the guy again yeah. based on the things that he didn't do well. But I think he did a lot of things well. And it's unfortunate that um, the things that, it, that, at least in my opinion, he didn't do well, um, you know, overshadowed that. So just my thoughts, whatever that's worth, whatever the, whatever the audience thinks about that, I'll get some, I don't know, some, some like uh, nasty grams, I'm sure, but whatever. Okay, two questions, ready? So Katie, do you think that it should be mandated that people get the vaccine. In other words, you have to have the vaccine or you can't come into my business. You have to have the vaccine, but you can't get on a plane. Do you think that should be mandated? I definitely do not think that should be mandated. I think that's crazy too. Crazy, uh, right? Totally crazy, totally crazy. This okay. is not like measles that kills little tiny children that have no you know, consent or, or this is crazy talk, this mandate yeah. vaccine business. Yeah, I know. It drives me nuts. And I, I just I just want to lose my mind when I hear that speaking. Well, it, uh, it, it also puts, you know, businesses or airlines or schools or whoever it is, it, it puts them into forced conversations about protected health information that absolutely. they should not have to be in conversations about. It's exactly right. Shouldn't have to be disclosing. It's it's totally it's exactly right. Yep. 100 percent agreed. Um, so hopefully we will never get there because you will see me like bare naked on the steps of the Capitol, sitting in a tent, protesting it, doing something crazy just so that it never happens. OK, last question for you. Um, you Jay, know, I got to I, 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 I stop you, man. Can the visual of the poodle dock on the White House steps naked just is just uh, if, if it's, if it's. It, it's stuck in my head now, man. It fits. I'm, I'm a fit guy. We're you know? against the vaccine, right? Like we're not necessarily against the vaccine. I want that Listen, to be clear. I'm for freedom. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm for freedom of choice too. Like I yeah. have not gotten the vaccine and I'm not going to get the vaccine at some point in my life. I may get a vaccine, but I think the most important thing is that we provide the best available scientific evidence to people so they can make an informed decision. I mean, that's, that's my position. Absolutely. Okay. People are freeborn citizens. That's exactly right. Okay. So last question, because speaking of going crazy, um, you know, as I listened to you and your story and my heartfelt sympathy and empathy, um, 
Um, just want to give you a big hug if I could about your sister. You know, it's a it's a tragic story that I know will turn into, you know, you changing the world. But but for our other listeners out there that might be feeling angst or like, like, what can I do today? Today, what can I do in order to help change the game to disrupt this completely fucked up system? What advice do you have for them for us? Okay, that is a that is a great question. I think the first thing I would say is, if you are an employee, you should go talk to your HR department and you should say, we need to think long and hard about our broker and about our carrier because the incentives in the healthcare system are tragic. I want to see a direct primary care offering here. I want to see, um, I want to see a formulary that's based on clinical and financial value. So there are, you know, consultants and there are people like like me, there are people like um, others that can come in and help with this. But um, the first thing, I mean, when I talk to HR departments, you know, my biggest marketing challenge is convincing employers that it's not too good to be true, that they can save so much money in the first year and have better benefits. So because HR departments, they're designed to protect their employees from bad things happening to them. That is what they do to, right. to protect their, their employers. And so they, they want to pick the safest, most risk-averse choice. And change is scary and risky. So if, if the employees can go and say, you know what? I want something different. I want something better. Would you be willing to hear about, you know, to, to, to read some case studies? Would you be willing to learn more about some alternative models? That's one thing you can do. Great. But I think it's really important also for healthcare providers, and then I'll have one for patients too, but for healthcare providers. And business owners too, business owners, don't forget business all owners. All business owners, yes. One thing to think about is coming together and starting to market your services directly to employers. So you don't have to give up your carrier contracts. You don't have to do that. But think about how can I reach out in some small way in my community and market my services directly to employers. How can I price my services for a monthly flat fee to take care of all the chiropractic needs of a certain workplace or all the PT needs or all the primary care needs or I will, I will create a bundled price for knee replacements. Whatever it is, whatever type of medicine you practice or healthcare service you provide, think about how you could market that for an employer in a way that would benefit you if you keep people healthy with fewer complications and at, at a lower cost. It's great advice. Check it out. There are ways that providers that have are part of small practices. The first thing providers need to think about, and I hate the word providers, I'm sorry. There's just no other catch-all. Yeah, that's so, cool. Um, the first way that, that providers need to think about is themselves as employers, okay? So we ourselves, as healthcare providers, we are in charge of practices. We have employees. They're small. What can we do to come together as groups of practices and start to offer these innovative types of plans? I'm working. I'm, I'm just starting to talk to an association of chiropractors. I'd love, I would love it if they could come together as a group of chiropractic practices and create offerings for themselves and, and market themselves to a direct to employers, but more importantly, take care of themselves with a better health plan. So that's one option. Also, if you have friends and other specialties, 
get together, create a little mini network offering. There are ways that you can do this. Go to the employer and say, hey, I've got a buddy who's an, who's an orthopedist. I got a buddy who's a primary care, got it, right? Mental health and behavioral health is a huge issue. Can you market behavioral health services to employers? They desperately need them. Yeah. Then, then you can start to be the change we want to see, right? So, um, and it should be led by healthcare providers. We are the ones that know best how totally whacked it is. We should be leading the way in our own practices. So that's, that's what I say to employers and providers, even small employers, there are ways that small employers can band together and, and have these offerings too. They're innovative, creative financing ways that it can be done. Okay, for patients, the thing that I would say to do for your everyday patient is a thing called the battlefield consent form. So when you go into any healthcare setting, any healthcare setting, but especially in an emergency room, but any setting, you're asked to sign a form. You have to sign a bunch of paperwork. What you're really signing is two forms, but they put it in one form. So the first form they need you to sign is consent to be treated, right? Yep, yep. You know, you can't touch it. The second form that they need you to sign is consent to be price gouged at any price <laughs> above what your insurance company will pay. And so what they do is instead of asking you those two separate questions, which would have very different answers, like, they put it all in one form and they have you just sign once at the bottom. So Katie, it's, it's like legislation. It's what legislation is. Little sausage making. So <laughs> they give you the form and they say, hey, just this, we're just getting their consent to treat, no big deal, consent to bill your insurance, no big deal. Just sign at the bottom, right? No, do not sign that form ever. So what I say instead is you can take that form and ask the, now we're doing it on iPads and whatever, right? So you can't even change the, the copy that you're signing. So I always ask for a paper copy. No, give me a paper copy. Strike out everything that's not consent to be treated and sign at the bottom. And then you can start, you can write on a napkin, on a piece of paper, on the back of one of those pages. You could say, I consent to be treated with any appropriate treatment at a rate not to exceed, you pick the number, times multiple of Medicare rates. I usually pick 1.25 times Medicare rate. Sometimes if I'm feeling generous, I'll go with 1.5. If you're in a particular specialty, maybe you'll go up to two. But believe me, your provider can afford it. I know all you providers out there are freaking out. This is what you do. And that way, when they come back at you and that out of network anesthesiologist price gouges you or whatever, they come back at you with bills. You can say, I'm sorry, please show me the documentation where I agreed to pay any price you're charging me because I did not agree to pay that. If they do not give you a price in advance of your healthcare, which, you know, they never do. Nobody that does. Yeah. That doesn't happen in healthcare. If they don't, the case law around this is that you have to give them a fair market rate. So that is what uh, healthcare providers are obligated to charge if they're not giving you price transparency at the VA. So you can hmm. always have this weapon that, listen, you didn't give me a price, so you can't charge me more than fair market rate. And you certainly can't surprise bill me with out of network rates or whatever that, that I never agreed to. You can pound sand. Hey, here's a fair market rate that I'll pay you. Katie, that's brilliant. Brilliant. I love it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Jay, remember in your office, do you combine those two uh, contracts together, buddy? 
I probably do, bro. You I don't do. know. Like, I'm not responsible yeah, for that. So yeah, sure. most, be the change. Be the change you want to see. Be the change, Jay. <laughs> I got to talk. I got to talk to Kat tomorrow. That's right. Absolutely. She's going to be our guest. She's going to be our guest in a couple of weeks. That will. I've got to write we this down. Her. So I'll ask her. her. I'll ask her up front. You know. And I've got to be honest. Most docs probably don't even understand that. Most of them probably. What agreement are you talking about, Brad? I mean, you know, it's one of those things. They just they become part of the bulk uh, issue. You know, they they just want to survive, and and it, so it's so true. It's like I, I wouldn't even know which one of the seventeen damn forms our patients have to fill out that that information is on. Like, I literally don't know. I mean, Cat would know, but I have no idea. So well, yeah, we got to fix that. We got to be the change, like like Katie said. You got to be the change. Amen, well, guys. Well, guys. It's been an exciting show tonight, and uh, I, Katie, again, thank you for being on it. Um, I, I've got a lot I want to show you and talk to you about, because some of the things that you were just talking about, I've been scheming on for some time uh, in different specialties, and as soon as we're off, I want to sort of quickly explain it to you to see if you want to have further conversations. But I think you're spot on on many, many things. Uh, thank you for being honest about the, your yes. political pieces of that. Um, and you're just an amazing woman and, uh, yes. uh, anything I know, I don't know about Jay, but uh, anything that I can do to help you, I, I'm there to help you do it. What do you it mean because, you don't know about me? You, you, well, I hate, you know, I know you're, you get a big heart and a big soul, but I hate to commit you, uh, commit you to things, but Katie, we, we, we are, we, we will do anything we can. We to will. Help we've got no, some, we're going to find ways to work together. We've got you? some amazing, and, and, we've got some amazing case histories that we can show you. We, we did this in some ACOs across the United States and, uh, we, we can prove and show a lot of the things that you want. And because we're collecting that data on a day-to-day -day basis, hour by hour basis, we have access to it in an ongoing way. So, and I think we have also a network of chiropractors that we know that potentially could do really well in the model that you're describing. So we'll we'll talk about that offline for sure, Katie. How do people get a hold of you? How do they learn more about you and your company? Yeah, so they can go to allbetter.health, allbetter.health, or they can just email me at Katie, K-A-T-Y, at allbetter.health. There you go. All right, people. Hey, guys, uh, thank you for joining us today, uh, docs out there. This is one you don't want to miss. There is no question about that. And again, from uh, Tech Talk, I'm Brad Cost, my cohort, Dr. Jay Greenstein. Good day. Tech Talk. Today's show is sponsored by our friends at the Florida Chiropractic Association. Join Dr. Jay and myself at their upcoming Northeast Regional Convention and Expo in St. Augustine, Florida on March the 25th through the 28th. The Florida Chiropractic Association, a true leader in the profession, advocating for the benefits of chiropractic and conservative care throughout America.